Good morning, and welcome to church. Let's open up in prayer. God, as we once again enter into your word, as we seek to connect with you, the word, open our hearts and minds to what you would have to say to us. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Help us to recognize our citizenship in a new kingdom and the rights and the freedoms and the callings that that brings with it. Thank you that you are with us. Thank you for church. Amen. Whew, we got a slow cooker going with uh, pulled pork in it and it's just getting to the point where it's kind of wafting through there over here. So if I'm a little bit uh, drooly through the message, you know why. But uh, I'm excited about today's message. I'm looking forward to talking about this. If you had a chance to read the bulletin, uh, we're going to talk about stewardship. So strap into your seats. It's time for a sermon that's going to resemble a uh, timeshare presentation. Lock the doors and turn up the heat. You can't leave the stream until we've met our pledge goal. Now, of course, you know that's not how we're about to operate. It's not how Pleasant Valley has operated in the past, and it's certainly not the direction that we're going in the future. Um, in all honesty, as someone who is paid, as my salary is drawn directly from church donations, this feels in some ways like an awkward thing to talk about. Um, but Jesus has a lot to say about money and wealth and generosity, and so it's an important thing to talk about. And that certainly outweighs uh, any awkwardness or hesitancy that I would have. And so we will. We're going to talk about this together for the next couple of Sundays. Today we're going to talk about stewardship of our finances, and next week we're going to talk about stewardship of our time. Uh, and of our gifts. Part of the reason I chose uh, right now to do this is because we're coming up to our annual general meeting. Uh, it's, an, it's an important part of the year. It's an essential part of the year where we as a covenant community, as a body of believers, sit down together and process what it is that we are going to do this year. How uh, can we be faithful stewards? How can we best use the resources that God has given us to glorify God, to spread the gospel, to show love to the people around us, to become what God has called us to be, the church. And giving, being a part of that, is, is one of the most tangible ways, I think, that together we say church isn't just somewhere we go, it's who we are. It's one of the ways that we say, I'm a part of this body is by being involved with our finances. Uh, and on Thursday evening, we're going to be looking at a spreadsheet with a bunch of line items on it that represent hundreds of thousands of dollars coming from our pockets and being redistributed in all sorts of ways. The money is going to go overseas to support spreading the gospel in all sorts of unique ways. It's, it's supporting local missions and ministries that touch hundreds of lives from young to old. It's providing resources to teach our kids about Jesus. It's facilitating care for our hurting people, our grieving people, our sick, and also our celebrating. It's uh, going towards the church building. This year, of course, has taught us how valuable it is to be able to gather together, uh, how special that is to be able to have a place to meet, to have a physical space that we call home. And our budget tells a story. It tells a story of the way that we have chosen to use our money. It says what's important to us as a church. It says that we value this thing. Our money's doing a lot of incredible things, uh, but it's our task and our responsibility. In fact, it's our calling as believers to prayerfully and thoughtfully consider and, and try to do together 
what seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And we want to do that with a generous spirit. God has called us to do that. So as we get into uh, this sermon together, as we get into this time of teaching, uh, I want to actually start by asking you a question. Um, I've heard that lots of you have enjoyed these questions. I've really enjoyed these questions, being able to see your responses in the chat. I love to see that. Uh, and I also hope that for those of you who are watching as a group or as a family, uh, for those of you with kids watching, that you take these opportunities to discuss with the people in the room to kind of process these questions together. I think they're good things to ask ourselves. That's, of course, why I ask them. But this is the question I want to start this service with. Of all the things that we together, that Pleasant Valley, spend money on, what do you value the most? What is the thing that we as a church have said, this is worth supporting? Whether it's buildings or programs or missions or youth uh, or a larger conference or facilitating the work of committees or education or technology or whatever it is, what stands out to you? Um, among the many things that we give our money to as a church, uh, as something that is significant or noteworthy or special to you. All right, thank you for your answers. I hope the discussion was good. Um, in this time of the pandemic, of COVID, we've uh, worked hard to restructure our meeting, our AGM in such a way that it will allow us to engage the best we can. We're gonna be meeting over Zoom, but what we'll do is provide reports ahead of time. We'll provide a PDF of the budget all on a page on our website. So that link to that page is gonna be going out later today along with a password to be able to access it. But we wanna take this opportunity and this calling seriously. And we want to listen carefully to what Jesus has to say about what it means to be a good steward. So what we're going to dig into today is maybe one of the more confusing parables uh, uh, that there are. Uh, it's one on stewardship that literally takes a look at a man who is a steward. He's a manager of someone else's money. He's a property and money manager for this rich man. And we'll see what truths we can pull out of this uh, for ourselves and our church. I'm going to start by reading the parable in full. This is from Luke 16, and I'm going to start at verse 1 here and go, I think, to verse 9. This is what it says. The parable of the shrewd manager is the title of the chapter. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job, and I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So, he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? Eight hundred gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it four hundred. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. 
So, yeah, not the most well-known parable, probably. Certainly not up there with ones like the prodigal son, the good Samaritan. Uh, it's a confusing story. Not everything makes perfect sense there. And there's a danger in trying to get, or in, in beginning to get a little bit too distracted in trying to figure out what exactly is going on with this dishonest manager who gets fired and slashes all these bills to those who owe his master. And then the master, the rich man, comes in and instead of being angry at the manager for doing this, uh, commends him. And, and Jesus says, be like this guy. And, and it's, it's a little bit kind of hard to wrap our heads around. You know, I'm trying to imagine a scenario where I'm about to be fired and I give away a bunch of my boss's assets for free. I cancel a bunch of invoices and he walks in on me doing this and goes, good job. You may not be a great manager, but you're a smart guy. Um, but it's important not to let what we don't understand about this parable rob us of what we do understand, of what's presented to us clearly. And, and in fact, the point here is made very clear because Jesus gives us the point at the end of the parable. He doesn't always do this, but for this one, he describes what he's getting at towards the end. In verse 9, he says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So we're going to spend a lot of our time today focusing in a little bit on that statement and trying to kind of draw some basic truths out of what we are called to do here on earth with our money. But before we get into that, what I want to do is just quickly walk through the narrative again, just the broad strokes of it to make sure we kind of understand this story. We've got a manager. This is like, uh, he's a combination of a COO and a CFO uh, for large estates. These people exist now that sort of manage households and finances for wealthy people. And they certainly existed in Jesus' time. And this guy has been given, you know, power of attorney and whatever else. And he has the right to invest this owner's money. He has the right to make business deals with others on behalf of this rich man, to hire and to fire. Uh, he's responsible for overseeing finances and operations and his word is legally as good as the owner's word. It's an important role, and it's one that you clearly would want to be careful um, who you place in it. And then this rich man uh, terminates this manager. He fires him. The guy's doing a bad job. He's been accused of wasting resources. The rich man hears about this, so he calls a meeting, and he says, you're out. You're fired. You've got a period of time to get your affairs in order, and then I want you out of here. And this manager, this steward, is terrified because he's got poor relationships with the other people in the community, the other businessmen. He's probably ripped them off in the past. His reputation is trash. He can't do manual labor. Uh, and so he's never going to get another job. He's going to end up begging on the streets. So in desperation, this is what he does. He calls up his master's debtors, those that owe his master various things, and he slashes the bill. He knocks off huge amounts of debt. And in doing this, he sets himself up for the future. He creates friends out of enemies. He gets a lot of people in his corner. And his master comes in and sees this and commends him. You know, you're dishonest. You're not a good manager, but you're very smart. You're a shrewd guy. So what's going on here? This is where we feel the distance between our culture and Jesus's culture, where being 2,000 years uh, and a continent and a bit removed makes it a little bit difficult to parse out what is happening here exactly. It's not clear what customs or systems are coming into play here totally, but the best theory among many theories that you can find about this is this. The manager was putting his own enormous fees into the amounts. He was adding extra to these bills in order to skim off the top for himself. And that was common practice 
in those days with these sorts of roles. Certainly we hear sometimes about tax collectors doing this, that they would go around and add in their own additional fees to put in their own pockets. But, but what was happening here potentially is that in slashing these bills, what he was doing is he was actually taking his portion out of it. He was taking that extra that he was charging off. And so perhaps the master comes along and goes, you're actually cleaning things up and you're giving me a better name out of this. And so good job. Um, I'm still firing you, but good job on this piece of it. But that's it. That's the whole story. Here's this man who is being wise with his youth of wealth, the use of wealth, apparently in this secular world. And Jesus is doing a, if this, then how much more sort of story. He does a lot of these through scripture where he goes, if this is true, then how much more should this be true for us? If this guy, this sleazebag of a manager knows how to use his wealth properly, knows how to win friends, knows how to use money to build relationships, then how much more should you being my disciples be using wealth in, in wise ways? And yet Jesus says the secular manager is doing a better job than you. He says, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people in the light. So what exactly is Jesus calling his disciples to understand? There are three points that I want to draw out of this uh, that I think we can focus on together for a little bit. The first point is this. We are stewards of money that isn't ours. Second, uh, we are building to a love that is yet to come. And third, we have been given a friendship that can never be equaled. So first, we are stewards with money that isn't ours. Jesus is comparing us here to this money manager. He's saying, that's your situation. You are managing money that is not yours. Uh, and the implication there is you can't just do whatever you want to with it. You have control. You've been given authority. But there are certain implications. And so many of us balk at that concept. We say, of course, it's our money. It's our stuff. We've worked hard for it. We, we maybe pay lip service to it being God's, but we don't really think of it that way. It's my money. And... If I've got some left over, I'll give some to God. But the fact is, is that if we really do believe what we say we believe about God, well, first off, you're alive. And, and being alive really helps when it comes to making money. And, you, and you're healthy. You've got talents. You've got giftedness. You were born into specific circumstances. I mean, you can have all the health and talents in the world, but... If you're out in the middle of the rainforest or on some mountain in the Andes, it might not get you very far. And it's easy to overlook just how blessed we are just by virtue of where we were born. It could have just as easily, statistically, more likely been any other part of the world. But, but we're here. We're in Rosenord. We're in this affluent, stable, safe farming and manufacturing village. And, and in the middle of this pandemic, it's become clear again just how fortunate we are. The economy... Uh, hasn't been touched here in the same way that it has some other places. The deck has been stacked in our favor in so many ways uh, that we don't even think about on a day-to-day -day basis. And so we can't rightfully claim what we have as ours. It's God's. David, a wealthy man, a hardworking man, a smart man, and like us, a profoundly lucky man, and a man after God's own heart, he understood this. He says in First Chronicles 29, he says, everything in heaven and earth is yours. Wealth and honor come from you. And who am I? Who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? 
Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your own hand. The fact is this. If it's true that you are a steward of what God has given you, and if it's true that God is calling you to be radically generous with that money, which he does many times through Scripture, then not being generous isn't just greediness, it's robbery. If you're a fund manager, hopefully you didn't short GameStop stocks, but if you're a fund manager and you aren't using your client's money in the way that they've directed, it's not just a lack of compassion um, or, or, or messing up a little bit, it's thievery. Uh, in Malachi 3 verse 8, the prophet speaks on God's behalf. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, says God. The Old Testament calls us to give 10% of our income away. And that feels like a lot. But imagine a scenario where someone comes to you and says, can you invest my money for me? Here's the deal. Every year, whatever you make, you can keep 90% of it. And I'll just take 10%. Would you take that job? Of course you would take that job. It's an incredible deal that you're being offered. Now, this isn't intended as a guilt trip or, 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 or a statement on how much you're giving or not giving. First of all, we celebrate that in an incredibly uncertain year, our church has continued to give faithfully, that we more than covered our expenses in the last year. It's not what this is about. And second, we recognize completely that as people go through different life stages, that affects the ways in which they are able to give. It's not what it's about. This is what it's about. It's about constantly doing the hard, intentional, important work of reminding ourselves how the world really works, of stepping outside of our culture's obsession with greed and with security and with growth, uh, financial growth, and reminding ourselves how God actually has things set up how our finances really work, what we've actually been called to do. It's easy to say those things. It's harder to live them out. Do we really treat our money as if it was God's? How would things change if we did? They're just important questions to keep asking ourselves. So that's first. We're stewards of money that isn't ours. Second, we are building to a love that is yet to come. Again, Jesus tells his disciples, this manager was wiser with his money than we who have a kingdom perspective. It's this argument. If the secular management manager gets it, how much more should we be living that way? So what did this manager do? He threw away short-term gains for long-term value, relationships. Jesus reminds us at the end of the parable, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Here's perspective, Jesus says. Stuff isn't permanent. Money isn't permanent. Nothing lasts. It's a, it's a silly investment. Throw your money into a, a, a vault in Switzerland. It doesn't matter. One day that mountain's going to be ground down to pebbles. And of course, long before that, uh, you're going to die. Putting your money into stuff, Jesus says, is a dumb investment. Instead, put your money into something that is literally going to last forever. Spend money in such a way that there is glory in heaven. Build the kingdom of God with the resources that you've been given. And what's helpful for us here is that Jesus doesn't stop with this sort of general generic idea of, of building the kingdom of heaven with our wallets or of putting money into eternal glory. We can understand those things maybe generally, but it doesn't really grab us, I don't think. It, it, it's tough to grasp. How do you go about doing that exactly? 
And it's interesting, when Jesus describes why investing in eternity is important, he doesn't talk about mansions uh, of glory. He doesn't talk about roads paved with gold. Um, instead, he talks about friends. He describes heaven as friends. Use your money to make friends that will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Michael Wilcock uh, writes about this parable. He says, Although these things, your property, ability, and time, belong to this life only, Jesus says, what will happen to you then when you pass into the afterlife will depend on what you were doing with them here and now. Make sure that your use of money brings you into a fellowship of friends that will survive beyond death. This parable narrative, uh, the lesson this steward learns is, uh, in its simplest form, it's more important to have friends. It's more valuable. It's a better long-term investment to have friends than to have money in the bank. So often we try to use money to solve issues that money isn't really able to solve. We try to use money to feel significant. Turns out when you have lots of money, people hate you. Your friends are fake. Your relationships are hollow. doesn't work out. You can see that over and over again in the lives of celebrities and athletes and others as they gain riches and end up losing relationships. You know what gives real significance? Love gives you significance. We try to use money to give us safety and security. Money doesn't give us safety and security, not really. Money can't protect us from everything around us. You know what does give safety and security? Friends, relationships, family, people who love you and who you love. You only truly feel wealth. You only truly feel valuable, feel secure when you have people who love you and who you love back. And, and here's the trick, something Jesus is getting at, is, is that the love that you and I need most desperately, that we desperately crave, is not something that we're going to experience fully here on earth. Um, Jonathan Edwards, the preacher from the 18th century, from the 1700s, uh, Anyone who went to Bible college probably read uh, his famous sermon, which is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's um, one of the most famous sermons preached uh, in the last 300 years. Uh, but of course, he wrote many sermons. And one of them that he wrote with a much more uh, appealing title is Heaven is the World of Love. And in this sermon, he argues that heaven is fundamentally a place of love, that love is what defines and characterizes heaven. And that lines up with what we understand about the character of God. And, and, and Edwards reminds us that here in, in this broken world, in our temporary home, in the midst of what I often refer to as the in-between, there are five barriers to love that are not going to exist in heaven. There are five needs that we have that are never going to be met perfectly here on earth. The first need we have is the need to be loved for our own sake. Uh, most relationships are built on convenience. They're transactional. We're friends with people because they're useful to us. They give us value in some way. Uh, and if we aren't useful, that value isn't there, then those friendships get dropped. Um, on earth, we are rarely, if ever, loved purely for our own sake, with no expectation of what we can bring or give or offer in return. In heaven... We will be loved purely and completely, not based on what we can offer, not based on the value that we bring, but simply based on who we truly are. It's a beautiful thing to look forward to, but we're never going to experience it fully here. Not fully. Second, 
We all want to express love without impediment. We have pride and selfishness and coldness and distance and these sorts of things that get in the way of us being able to love fully. We wish that we could love fully, but we can't. It's amazing. Uh, I heard Tim Keller talking about this and it struck a chord. Um, I'll paraphrase here. He said, I love my wife deeply more than anyone else on earth. But so often you get to the end of the day and you lie down in bed and you go, man, I didn't do nearly as good a job of expressing that love as I wanted to. There's so much love in my heart. There's oceans of love, but it's like it's it's spraying out through a straw. It's like I can't express that love in the way that I wish. It's always there. But, but how is it true then that I'm so often unloving or distant to the person that I love most in the world? Uh, in heaven, we don't have to worry about that anymore. In heaven, we will be able to love without any restrictions. We will be able to express all of our love perfectly and unfiltered. Third, we want to love mutually. There's almost nothing harder than loving somebody more than they love you back. Uh, and every relationship on earth has some level of that imbalance, of that imperfection. Love desperately desires reciprocity, desires that it gets returned and, and it gets an equal response. And in heaven, we'll have that. Fourth, when you love someone, if they aren't happy, you can't be happy. There, there's an old quote that I read that says, once you start having children, you are never happier than your unhappiest child. Um, and and uh, it's a bit of a silly statement, but parents also know there's some truth behind that statement. We are tied at some level to the emotional states of the people that we love. And so if you love more than five people, well, you're never going to be happy anymore. It's, it's we are caught in this web and this mesh. And in heaven, our love will be able to be expressed and received with pure joy. Fifth and last, we want love without parting. Some of you have already experienced this in deep ways. All of us are going to walk with it someday. We're going to bury people we love. Our spouses, our parents, our friends, our family. It's inevitable. There is loss in our lives. There is a pain of separation. That's how it is here, but not there, not in heaven. Someone, a pessimist, once said that life here on earth is like being a beached whale. <laughs> sure, we're alive, but not for long. We're not where we belong. And let's be honest, we're not having an especially great time. When whales get back in the water, there's a sense that this is what they're meant to do. This is where they are meant to be. This is where we belong. So what does that do? Thinking about heaven, recognizing the ways in which we are going to step into eternity where our love can be given and received perfectly. What does that do to the way that we spend our money for the rest of our lives? That's what this parable is asking. And that's my next question for you. With a view of heaven like this, an understanding of the perfect love that we're going to get and we're going to give there. How does our view of our money and resources and the role they play change now? How does our thought about how we spend our money change? I'm sure you gave great answers. I'll give a few of my own. First, never make money at the expense of people. Second, 
Focus on finding ways to put money into the needs of those around us. And third, use our money to spread the gospel, to create a fellowship of friends that are going to survive beyond death. Lastly, I'm going to close with this. We have been given a friendship that can never be equaled. In 2 Corinthians, Paul urges the church in Corinth to give to their sister congregations in Macedonia. He asks them to excel in this grace of giving. And he says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through poverty might become rich. Paul says, I want you to give, not out of obligation, but out of love. And the church in Corinth, and sometimes us today, asks, how do we do that? Where does that love come from to be so recklessly generous with our money? Paul says it comes from Jesus. Think about Jesus. Though he was rich, became poor. And through his power, we can become rich. Jesus is our ultimate example. He is the one perfect friend who emptied himself of all wealth, in order to gain all friends. We were his enemies, but because of the cross, we are now friends of God, Scripture tells us. And because of that ultimate friendship, we're going to live forever with Jesus in heaven. Heaven is a world of love. Uh, Jonathan Edwards tells us this. So we are called to use our money in a way that is built on a knowledge of what we are building towards and also of what God is doing here and now in this moment as he is joining us in this pursuit. It's about looking forward to heaven, but it's also about recognizing the ways that God is moving in this place, in this moment, and calling us to love uh, in transformative ways here now on earth. And so as we head into this annual general meeting, let's heed Jesus' words. Let's focus on using our money in ways that build up God's kingdom, in ways that invest wisely into the long term, uh, and in ways that build up a wide, wide circle of friends who will be with us for eternity. Amen.